from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, October 28th. Today, a snapshot of the electoral map, what we can and cannot learn from polling, and a complicated end to the World Series. With just a week left until the election, there is a lot of attention on the states that could make a difference on election night. There are the states that we knew would be battlegrounds, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. And then there are states that we didn't think could be in play, places like Texas. I'm trying to, like, paint a beautiful picture of Texas for you here. (laughs) Are you from Texas? I'm not. Texas, the most beautiful, magical state in America. (laughs) Exactly. Jenna Johnson is a political reporter, and she's been looking at early voting in Texas, which has honestly been pretty astonishing. As of Wednesday morning, more than 8.1 million voters there have cast ballots. That's nearly 91% of the state's overall vote in 2016. Texas is hugely important to Republicans. It has 38 electoral votes. It's crucial. Republicans have a lot of maps that they've been passing around that show different paths to victory for Trump, showing that even if he lost this state, as long as he wins these states, he'll be fine. And across all of those maps, Texas is just a given. It's been a given for a long time. You have to go back to 1976 to President Jimmy Carter to find the last time a Democrat won Texas. But this year, it's close, like quite close. So it seems like things are pretty neck and neck there. Joe Biden is just a little bit behind Donald Trump. If you look at an average of all the polls that are coming out, there's a Senate race there that has really tightened. There's at least a handful of congressional seats that Democrats are hopeful that they can take over. Texas is one of those places that Democrats love to dream about. They can't help but just be enamored by the poll numbers that they're seeing coming out of Texas. And that dream for Democrats that Texas could flip. It feels like it has kept popping up in recent election cycles. The latest poll came out showing Trump leading Clinton by only three points. Well, that has Texas Democrats salivating at the idea that Texas, of all places, could turn blue. El Paso Congressman Beto O'Rourke has the political world wondering if he can topple the Republican Senator Ted Cruz. But this year, there are some new factors at play. Well, there's been a long-term shift that's been underway because the electorate in Texas is just changing. You have a lot of people who are moving there from places like California, Florida, New York, Illinois. I mean, some estimates say a thousand people a day are moving to Texas, and a lot of them tend to be Democrats. You also have a huge wave of young people who are turning 18 each year, especially young Latinos. There's one estimate that each year 200,000 young Latinos are turning 18 and are eligible to vote. So you have these demographic changes that are happening in Texas. And based on those, Democrats were thinking, 
you know, maybe in 2024, we could win statewide. Maybe by that point, we'll have the demographics that we need to win statewide. But things seem to have sped up Hmm. because Trump is in office. And all of a sudden, you have small numbers of Republicans and right-leaning independents who are just fed up with the president and are willing to vote for Democrats. And then when we talk about this demographic shift in Texas, how would that potentially play out for down-ballot races? Down-ballot is actually where a lot of Democrats have had their eye, much more so than the top of the ballot. The Texas House, Democrats were able to pick up a bunch of seats in 2018, really shocking Republicans. And they're hoping that they can pick up more seats this year. They're actually only nine seats away from taking control of the Texas House. And if they did so, that would happen right before redistricting happens. So this would give Democrats more of a say in how district lines are drawn in Texas. So that would have potential implications for who ends up in Congress if you have Democrats who can play a bigger role in coming up with the lines for the districts that send people to Congress. Exactly, exactly. Texas has had such population growth that they will probably gain a couple of congressional districts with the new cycle. And, you know, if they can aim to have more of a say in how those lines are drawn, it could make it even easier for them to win some of these districts. But at the same time, what are the reasons why Democrats should not be hopeful in Texas? Or or I guess what are the caveats that we should be keeping in mind as we're looking at these poll numbers that show Biden pretty close to Trump? Yeah, so Beto O'Rourke gave Texas Democrats a lot of hope in 2018 when he came very close to beating Ted Cruz. And a lot of times when people think about Texas, They look at that margin in that midterm election as what they need to overcome. People need to remember that 2020 is not a midterm election. It is a presidential election and you have President Trump on the ballot. There's going to be a lot more people voting in this election than voted two years ago and a lot more Republicans who are going to be coming out and voting this time around. There's been a lot of focus on the huge bursts in early voting in the Dallas and Houston areas, just record-setting turnout in those areas. But it's important to remember that there's also been bursts of early voting in very Republican areas. Republicans I talked to in Texas pointed to the Midland and Odessa area. Just because people are voting early doesn't mean they're necessarily voting for Democrats. And one area that Democrats are worried about is the Rio Grande Valley. This is South Texas, right along the Mexican border. And early turnout is a little bit higher than it was in 2016, but it's nothing like we've seen in other counties in Texas. This area is rural in places. It's also heavily Latino. It's also heavily Democratic. This is an area where Joe Biden could run up the vote, but Democrats just haven't yet gotten enough people to the polls down there. In the event that Joe Biden were to win Texas, what would we expect to see on election night? Well, on election night itself, if Joe Biden would happen to win Texas, that would be it. The election would be over. And Texas plans to have its votes counted that night, 
But there would also be a bigger message that would be sent. It, it would send a very clear message about President Trump's approval in the country and would also kind of communicate to the country how much Texas has changed over the years. And I think that's part of why this vision of a shifting Texas is, frankly, like so tantalizing to Democrats, because I think that it's a a thing that Democrats are hoping to see in other states, too. This sense of places that used to be Republican locks maybe aren't so much Republican locks anymore, considering that they have urban centers that are very diverse, very young, and tend to have demographics of people who are Democrats. Exactly. And they've already watched this play out in Virginia and Colorado. And now they're waiting to see if it can also happen in other states where you see these growing urban areas that are more and more diverse. If we told you all a year ago how competitive George was going to be, you would have all looked like one another like you're crazy. In the last week before Election Day, both the Biden and Trump campaigns have put their focus on some of these states that are suddenly competitive. We're seeing both polling data and actual turnout numbers in a number of states that have been Republican states or leaning Republican states in previous election cycles, among them North Carolina. Ten days we're going to win the state of North Carolina. Georgia. There's no state more consequential than Georgia in that fight. Arizona. No, we're uh, we're in first place in Arizona. Florida. We got one week, Orlando. Send Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to the White House. Reporter Amy Gardner has also been closely watching the race in these states. In all those states, there's pretty strong evidence in the polls, at least, that the race is either neck and neck or Biden is a couple of points ahead in North Carolina, for instance. And in the turnout numbers where it's available with party registration, as it is in Florida and North Carolina, there's an incredible advantage so far for Democrats in those who have voted. I want to talk a little bit more specifically about Georgia. The fact that Biden is slightly ahead there in the polls right now, how unusual is that? It's stunning. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) our polling average for October actually has Biden and Trump basically neck and neck, but you're not wrong that Biden has been ahead in some polls that we're tracking. So there's, it's, it really is uh, a sea change. And then how does that play out for Senate races and House races and elections for state legislators? So you have two competitive Senate seats in Georgia this year. And the reason for that is one of them is a special election. Kelly Loeffler was appointed to complete the term of Johnny Isaacson, who retired in 2019. But she has to stand for election at the first opportunity. And that's this opportunity, even though the six-year term was not actually done. Then you have a regularly scheduled election between Senator Perdue, a Republican, and John Ossoff, a Democrat. And both of those races are incredibly competitive. Polling shows both of them sort of even. And in Georgia, the winner of a Senate race has to win 
50% plus one vote or else there's a runoff. And so Hmm. virtually all analysts and data crunchers believe both of those races are headed to a runoff, which makes it really hard to know what's going to happen because the shape of the electorate when we get to a runoff, say, in January, is going to be very different from the kind of turnout numbers that we're seeing right now for the November 3rd election. And then what about the state legislature? Yeah, so there are actually some internal Republican polls that sources of mine have told me about in Georgia that show that Democrats are within range of taking over the state House of Representatives. And what makes that really interesting is that every state legislature in the country is going to be redrawing the congressional district boundaries next year after we see the completed census results from 2020. It'll be interesting to see If Democrats pick up control of state houses across the country, as many think they will do this year, whether they will stop being crusaders on the issue of nonpartisan redistricting, which they were crusaders on with Republicans controlling the majority of houses in the country previously. And just to game things out for election night a little bit more, if Georgia were in this position where it goes to Biden, then what are the scenarios where Trump and Republicans are still able to get enough electoral college votes to actually be able to win? Well, never say never, but I would say that if Biden's winning Georgia, there isn't a path for President Trump in all likelihood, overwhelmingly impossible. If Biden's winning Georgia, then there's a sea change. There's a wave that's going to mean that it would be incredibly unlikely for him to win Georgia and not win Pennsylvania or for him to win Georgia and not win Michigan or Wisconsin. I mean, one of the areas of growth for Republican support in 2016 that helped usher President Trump into office was winning those three upper Midwest states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Well, the polling right now makes that look highly unlikely. Certainly a sweep of those three states is highly unlikely. We know that Biden is still nervous about Pennsylvania. There's been good polling, but it's close. He's spending a tremendous amount of time there. But if Trump loses Georgia or North Carolina or Arizona or Florida, one of those states he's got an incredibly narrow path. The math for Trump is that he needs all of those states plus Pennsylvania to win. You know, it it feels like really since the beginning of this election cycle that there has been this tension between wanting to look at polling numbers as kind of reading the tea leaves of what's going to happen on November 3rd, but also this sense from 2016 that poll numbers aren't always reliable, that they have to be taken with a gigantic grain of salt, and that it's very easy to get takeaways from polls that don't end up playing out in reality. And so I'm wondering, like, what are the caveats that you have in mind as you look at this landscape, both for Georgia and for other states that are in similar situations? situations where all of a sudden we're seeing numbers that suggest that things are really neck and neck, both when it comes to presidential races, but also with other races. I think there are a couple of caveats to pay attention to and be aware of as we head toward Tuesday. First of all, all of us are a little gun shy because of what happened in 2016. There's certainly an argument that polls and journalists are overcompensating a little bit, being too careful. There are certainly people who are monitoring the polls and the actual turnout numbers and who believe that 
the path for Joe Biden is quite clear. I'm not among them. Maybe I'm being a little gun shy, but there are good reasons for that. And I'll give you a good example that stems from Florida. It wasn't just that the polls were telling us something. It was also that the campaign's own modeling was telling them something that turned out not to be true in a fatal way. What do you mean by that? In Florida, the early vote was overwhelming for Democrats, which is exactly what's happening this year. And the Clinton campaign erroneously believed that that advantage was going to carry through to election day. They did the same thing in the three states that we all have burnished in our brains in the upper Midwest that decided the election for Donald Trump. Early vote numbers gave them some data that they used to build a model that was off by a hair's breadth, literally. You all know how narrow those results were in those three states. And the models were just wrong enough on what that early vote meant for Hillary Clinton that they got it wrong. So here we are four years later seeing an incredible surge of voter participation and seeing an incredible advantage in 16 of the 19 states that give us partisan breakdowns of who has voted. The Democrats are winning the vote by a landslide. But here's a really interesting piece of data. The margins are narrowing right now. Florida, in one night, in one day's worth of voting this week, the margin of advantage for Democrats dropped from something like 350,000 votes to something like 300,000 votes in the space of a day or so. And the reason for that is Republicans are now turning out in greater numbers in person as we come to the end of early voting, which will be the final weekend before the election. And so... All of that for me has meant taking great care to report what we see and what we know and be incredibly careful and cautious and conservative about what it might actually mean. The biggest X factor in all of this is who actually turns out who hasn't yet voted yet. That's always the X factor. But this year has really starkly illustrated how we have to be cautious about what we do and don't know because this election is unlike any other. We don't know how many people are going to show up on Election Day. We don't know whether there's going to be a surge of participation as the final days of early voting wrap up. And we can only report what we see and what we know. And that's been our mantra, basically on the voting team. Amy Gardner and Jenna Johnson are both political reporters for The Post. At the center of all these conversations about which states may or may not be in play, there is polling. And though polls have gotten a pretty bad rap since 2016, they remain a hugely important part of how we understand the race. We report on voters in a variety of ways. We, we talk to people that are at campaign events. We try to reach people in informal ways. But polls are a you know, scientifically designed way to try to reach a representative sample of voters. And the alternative is much worse, which is no information about what voters think. I'm Scott Clement. I'm the polling director at The Washington Post and part of The Post's polling team. We published a poll today with ABC News that found Biden with a slight seven-point edge among likely voters in Michigan and a larger 17-point lead among likely voters in Wisconsin. And why has this poll gotten so much attention? 
Why are people asking so many questions about the polling in these two states? Well, the simple reason is that they were key to Trump's victory. Trump won these states, these three states, uh, well, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, by fewer than 80,000 votes in aggregate over all four years ago. And they used to be Democratic-leaning states. Democrats had won them in elections consistently for decades. So uh, the question is, is there something about these states that where Trump has a unique appeal? And polls are our clearest window into whether that appeal still holds. So if you're saying that there was a seven-point lead for Biden in Michigan and a 17-point lead for Biden in Wisconsin, what do those numbers tell us and what do those numbers not tell us? Well, they certainly give an indication that Trump is struggling in those states, just to put it plainly. But beyond the horse race numbers, really what they show is that uh, Trump is losing a central argument of the campaign. He wants to say that the coronavirus pandemic is turning the corner in the U.S., that people shouldn't be concerned about infections, and that they should uh, reopen. The poll finds that most people are worried about infections, in fact, that concerns are rising, that they disagree with Trump in his feud with the Michigan governor. Not only that, they support their state's mass requirements and restrictions on businesses and public gatherings. So I think it illuminates what's going on in a key element and dynamic of this campaign. Now, we can't say that these results are going to hold through election day, but they do give some clues about how voters are reacting to this moment. And for people who are trying to get a sense of what the accuracy of these polls could be or what the potential error of these polls could be, a lot of times people see this idea of a margin of error, which I think for many people is just sort of like the asterisk that is tacked on at the end of poll numbers that nobody actually pays attention to. But margins of error are actually really important. Can you explain what they are and how people should use them in understanding polls that they're seeing? So the margin of error is the best estimate from a poll of the degree to which random sampling you know, could be missing support for a candidate. So if a candidate is at 50% support and the margin of error is plus or minus four, uh, four points, that means that they might be at 46, they might be at 54. The best estimate is 50, but it's possible that they're in that other range. The difficulty with pre-election polls is we're not interested in whether one candidate is at 50%. We're interested in the difference between those two candidates. And that means you need to combine that margin of sampling error for both candidates. In plain terms, that really means that a candidate needs to have a lead of nearly two times the margin of sampling error in order for it to be statistically significant. That, that there's a world in which if the margin of error for Trump were to hit the upper part of that margin and the margin of error for Biden were to hit the lower part of that margin, then the, the idea of a lead is no longer a lead. The other thing to think about is that sampling error is one of the best forms of error in the polling world because we can actually quantify it. We know through statistical theory and probability theory that this should be pretty good at capturing random sampling error. But there are other ways polls can go wrong. Um, they might ask questions in a way uh, that inaccurately measures results. They might not identify the right people as likely voters. And while they may wait by education or other demographics uh, to ensure the sample matches the population, ultimately those are 
partial measures. They only go some way to making sure the poll sample is representative of the population. So then what is your big piece of advice for people who will continue to see news about polls in the next week as they try to figure out what is going to happen on Tuesday and in the days after Tuesday? My main piece of advice is don't squint too hard at win probabilities or the polling averages. It is important to try to measure those accurately, uh, but there's a margin of error to those too, so to speak. And, you know, what the polls show us right now is that Biden has a larger edge than Clinton had four years ago. Clinton was favored to win four years ago, but Trump had a, a, a decent chance and he ended up pulling it off. Trump still has a chance to win, maybe less than this time. But, you know, you can keep tracking these polls daily. It, you know, I certainly appreciate people reading the articles, but, uh, you know, step back a little bit from the from the precision because the polls probably aren't going to meet it. And also try to dive a little deeper into what's motivating voters on these and what's driving their opinions. I think that's some of the most valuable material that we have. Scott Clement is the polling director for The Post. And now, one more thing from Post Report's senior producer, Maggie Penman. On Tuesday night, the Los Angeles Dodgers won the World Series. And this was a huge moment for the team. They hadn't won a World Series in more than three decades. But the celebrations had a little bit of a dark cloud over them because toward the end of the game, the Dodgers' third baseman, Justin Turner, was mysteriously absent. Hernandez hitting in the number three spot. Still no word on if something happened injury-wise to Justin Turner, but this would be his spot. And we learned after the game that he had been taken out because he tested positive for coronavirus. They were on the cusp of pulling off this season that at times, you know, back in the summer seemed like it was in peril. And right at the last moment, they had this positive test and it kind of colors everything. I caught sports columnist Barry Sverluga before his flight. He was in Arlington, Texas for the World Series. And after the game finished, he was filing his story and he finished work and closed his laptop. I looked down at the field for the first time in probably 45 minutes and they were, the Dodgers were gathered to take the photo. And my, my reaction was, what a shame that Justin Turner doesn't get to participate in that. This guy has become kind of the heart and soul of the Dodgers. He had been a cast off player who remade himself and became a star. You know, I thought in the moment, that's terrible that he doesn't get to to share that or be in those photos and, and all that. I found out later that, in fact, he was in the photos. You can see the video and the photos of Justin Turner going back out on the field and celebrating with his team and even pulling his mask down for a team photo, hugging his teammates. And of course, a lot of people looked at this and felt really disappointed. It's an incredibly emotional moment for for Turner, he's 35, which is on the backside of your career. He's about to be a, a free agent, so he really doesn't know whether the Dodgers are going to bring him back um, or you know where he's going to play next year. He's put his whole life into building to that moment. But what you see, what's represented in him, you know, 
on the ground with his his teammates smiling for the camera is not just poor optics, but potentially reckless behavior. We can't say what will happen going forward, but but in that moment, it was it was striking that the personal choice he was making to celebrate with his teammates this this accomplishment is potentially putting other people at risk. I think this past summer, there was this huge question mark over the whole Major League Baseball season. A couple of teams had serious COVID outbreaks, and it wasn't clear at certain points that the season would continue at all. And then it seemed like baseball had course corrected, and they were about to finish the season having really figured it out. And obviously, this development changes that narrative. Maggie Penman is the senior producer of Post Reports. Barry Sferluga is a sports columnist for The Post. On Wednesday afternoon, the MLB said that Turner's decision to leave isolation and return to the field was wrong and put everyone he came into contact with at risk. The commissioner's office also said there will be an investigation into the matter. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our colleagues at the Washington Post podcast, Can He Do That?, have spent the better part of the last four years reporting on the Trump presidency. Now they have a new series out this week about the ways that the Trump administration's policies and rhetoric have contributed to a more sharply divided country. It's a great listen. We'll put a link in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. 